Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Hey, it's Kai back with another bonus episode for you. This is the third installment of Blindspot, The Plague in the Shadows, which I co-reported with my colleague Lizzie Ratner. It's a history of the early days of the AIDS epidemic, told from the perspective of communities that have too often been overlooked in that history. So much about the epidemic was misunderstood in the 80s and even into the 90s. And today's episode is about a group of women who organized to change the very definition of AIDS and did it in part from prison. If you haven't heard the first two episodes of Blindspot, they're waiting for you right here in this podcast feed. And you can find more information about the series in our show notes. Also, right after this episode, I have a special announcement about Notes from America. So stick around and I'll tell you more about it after we hear the stories of some fearless women who made a difference. One, two, three, four... Testing, one, two, three, four. This is the CDC in Atlanta on November 19th, 1990. That's Maxine Wolf. Maxine Wolf. She's 49 years old and she is fierce. She's just flown down to Atlanta from New York City to meet with experts from the Centers for Disease Control. Now, Maxine, she is not a doctor and she's not a health professional. She is an activist. And she's come with a tape recorder. You know, I'll make you a copy that you can have. I'm Lizzie Ratner. It's now 1990, and we are nine years into the epidemic. More than 100,000 people have died. Gay men are getting sick in mind-boggling numbers, but they are also fighting back. But women, the world is just pretty much ignoring women with HIV. So Maxine, she's been going to a lot of these kinds of meetings. What you may not know is that we are women who have been focusing on the issue of women and AIDS for years. Years. We are activists. No offense, but we are not impressed by doctors, nor are we impressed by medicine in general, because we know that those two groups have never cared about women. We literally had to convince the federal government that there were women getting HIV. We actually had to develop treatment and research agendas that were about women. To be clear, women could and did test positive for HIV. And technically, the government knew this. 
The problem was, it wasn't doing much about it. But Maxine, she and a bunch of other activists were trying to change this. Maxine was part of the Women's Committee of ACT UP, and they had been pushing for a meeting with the CDC for months. And now, finally, they found themselves in a conference room in Atlanta, giving a presentation to some of the foremost experts on HIV and AIDS. So the way we'd like to do it is that Katrina is going to talk first about some of the issues that she's seen. Women die like six times faster than men with HIV or AIDS. Katrina Haslip. She's only 31, but she is already a veteran activist for women with HIV and AIDS. She's the only Black woman in the room. She is small in stature, but she commands attention. I don't trust you know, the CDC or its definition because it appears that from a distance people are watching as we progress on and knowing that these series of symptoms are in fact progression to full-blown AIDS and they're not responding. To give you some context as to why Maxine and Katrina had to work so hard to get those people in that Atlanta conference room to see women with HIV, AIDS had been framed as a man's disease, a gay man's disease. And so lots of people, from your average member of the public to high ups in the medical establishment, they just weren't thinking about women. A lot of them didn't even know that women could get HIV. And the problem went deeper than that. Medicine was a male profession, had been for as long as anyone could remember, and sexism came with those white coats. Or most white coats, anyway. Um, I'm the emeritus chair of two hospitals in Brooklyn, Downstate Medical Howard Minkoff was an OBGYN in Brooklyn. In the 80s, women were disposable. In those days, most of the women weren't cared about at all compared to the... Um, Frail pale male, as the old white guys are called these days. <laughs> uh, there is a difference in the way society weighs their, their rights and their values. It just became more apparent during the AIDS epidemic. I saw myself as an inside-the-system activist. Dr. Kathy Anastas. She became an AIDS expert through her work at Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx. Because I was one of the first doctors to speak up about HIV in women and that we needed to know more. That lack of knowledge about women and HIV was obvious. Kathy still remembers being at an AIDS conference years into the epidemic. And someone got up, a man, and said, it's not regular heterosexual sex that's transmitting it. All those women must be having anal sex. And I said, no, that's, that's not actually what the evidence shows. What the evidence shows is that heterosexual sex transmits HIV to women. I don't think he believed me, but he did <laughs> shut up. <laughs> Kathy was used to men not shutting up. She graduated from medical school in 1980, and at the time, only one in four medical students was a woman. And this showed up in the classroom. Anatomy class, first year of medical school. It's like 100 medical students there. There's someone teaching it, a guy. They were all guys, almost all guys. And he puts up, to teach anatomy, pinup photos of naked women. And he claimed, well, this is a medical book. Women are just not valued at all. 
As an obstetrician, Howard Minkoff saw that most of the medical community was concerned about women with HIV only when they were pregnant. And even then, they focused mostly just on their babies. Anybody who cared anything about any of these people cared about the baby. Get the mother out of here. Let us take care of the baby. The victim of the epidemic is the baby. They were vectors. They weren't women. They were vectors. And what do you think that was about? People were concerned about the virus getting from a woman. They were completely indifferent to the virus getting to women. This might have had something to do with which women were getting sick. They're people. They're not drug users. They're people who lived a normal life, had sexual intercourse, may have had an addiction, and had a tragedy. I'm Kai Wright. You're listening to Blindspot, the plague in the shadows. Stories from the early days of AIDS and the people who refused to stay out of sight. By the late 1980s and early 1990s, a surge of activism had begun to make progress on AIDS. Public awareness was growing, and elected officials could no longer just ignore it. In 1990, Congress passed the Ryan White Care Act. This was an enormous milestone in the epidemic, and it provided over $200 million in its first year to fund care and treatment for low-income people living with HIV. Today, it remains a crucial part of how care is funded in the United States. Lizzie Ratner, who's been reporting this series with me, takes the story from here. Here's the problem. Amid all these promising new developments, the money that was going to support poor people with HIV, the funding that was going to fight the disease, there were a bunch of people who were being left out. Women. Studies on HIV and AIDS, clinical trials to test new treatments, medical conferences, those were all about men. And the very definition of AIDS itself didn't include symptoms that were being experienced specifically by women. This story begins inside a maximum security prison for women. We were these supposedly criminals, you know, the outcasts of society that was responding to the epidemic in a way that some communities out here were not even responding. And that really made us hyped. One name kept coming up at the center of this story. Katrina. Katrina. I kind of became obsessed with who is Katrina Haslip. Katrina was an inspiration to all. Katrina Haslip, the woman who spoke at the CDC meeting. She was young. She was only in her 20s when she arrived at the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility. She grew up in Niagara Falls, one of 11 kids. In her late teens, she found Islam and married a religious man and moved to Brooklyn. But by the age of 21, she'd moved back to Niagara Falls and fallen pretty deep into an addiction to heroin. She could stay out on the streets all night and still somehow managed to go to college in the morning. She soon started doing sex work and stealing, and the word was that she could lift a wallet off of anyone. She ended up getting arrested for pulling a knife on a client, and that is how, in 1985, she ended up in a maximum security prison for women in upstate New York. Katrina was very fiery, and she had a real temper. Judith Clark. She met Katrina in solitary confinement, the prison's prison, at Bedford Hills. 
I think she got into a scuffle with an officer is my memory of what led her there. And I remember her saying, you know, saying something like, oh, God, it was worth it. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> with this great big smile on her face. Judy was also in prison at Bedford. And the crime that got her there, it was a big deal. Good evening. Echoes of the violent, radical underground of the 1960s rolled over the New York suburb of Nanuet today in the botched ambush of an armored car that left one guard and two policemen dead. Among the four suspects... The Brinks robbery. It was a crime committed by an offshoot of the far-left weather underground. Three people were killed. Judy was driving the getaway car, and she and Kathy Boudin were among the four people arrested. Judy was sentenced to 75 years to life in prison. Our cells were um, very bare, you know, cinder block walls and a solid door and then a small window on the other side that had a lot of mesh on it. I mean, it sounds kind of terrifying. It was. In solitary confinement, they were allowed just one hour a day outside. And most days, Judy would walk laps around the track alone. And then, after a few months, suddenly, this woman appears. She's beautiful and very elegant. She wore a head wrap. She wore a long dress and was incredibly stylish. (laughs) There are people who managed to be stylish in prison, and Katrina was one of them. And something between the two women clicked. They were both grappling with their lives before prison, what they had done. And so every day they would walk and just talk. You know, she told me a little bit about her life and about her own struggle toward recovery, having gone through a period of addiction. On the one hand, she's incredibly intelligent. She was a practicing Muslim, but she had this fire and it could get her in trouble. And that is what drew them together and got them to start organizing in prison. Let's take a look at the issue of AIDS in prisons. This is Dr. Sheldon Landisman, and he's speaking at a forum in 1987. A huge percentage of the persons in the prison system, and I can't get a good handle on the number for anywhere from 70 to 80 percent, have used drugs prior to coming to prison. We know from a variety of studies that at a minimum, 50% of the intravenous drug users in the New York City and surrounding area are infected with the AIDS virus. Taking the most conservative estimates. AIDS was becoming a huge problem in the prison system and not just among injection drug users. The New York Department of Health tested women as they were entering the prison system in 1988. It found that fully 18.8% of women tested positive for HIV. That is almost one in five women, higher than the rate for men. And these numbers, they were probably an undercount. In Bedford, so many women had fallen sick and disappeared that rumors were running wild. Nobody knew what the hell was going on. Meet Awilda Gonzalez. Everybody calls me Wendy. Wendy got to Bedford around the same time as Katrina in 1985. She was in for possessing and selling drugs. And when she arrived, she found everyone on edge. Well, many women bully other women, harassed them, beat them, shamed them, blamed them. 
their own fear because at one point we all looking at this woman and saying, wait a minute, how many times did I share a needle? See? But how many times did you make love to somebody and they didn't tell you or they didn't know? There was still a lot of confusion around how you got HIV, but there was one thing that everybody knew. If you got infected, you died. I mean, no one wanted to be seen going to, to the medical department for anything because they were afraid that people would say, oh, she's an AIDS bitch. Wendy worked as a hairdresser in the prison hair salon, and she was starting to get lots and lots of questions. My scissors, the knife that I used to do certain, you know, styles in the hair, and women questioning me, what are you doing to disinfect this? And I say, you know what? I need to educate myself. Either people were going to turn against each other, as was happening, or people were going to be able to seek each other. The women started organizing to put together a meeting. You didn't have to be HIV positive to join. Well, you know, we wanted women among the druggies. We wanted women among the good old Christians. We wanted white women. We wanted Hispanic women. We wanted black women. We wanted religious. We wanted non-religious. We wanted hippies. Katrina was part of that initial organizing group. She worked in the law library, and so she began spreading the word to other women. Soon, they had 30 people who were interested. Here's how she described that first meeting in a documentary a few years later. So we like went around introducing ourselves and about the third woman, she said, my name is Sonia and I have AIDS, you know. And I had never heard anybody say that before out loud. And I don't think anybody else in the room had heard anybody else say that out loud. And the room went like silent. And then people like engulfed her. And, and it made me cry because it was like, there was so much support in the room um, for this person who was able to say, I have AIDS, you know. And I thought to myself, I can never say that. Katrina had tested positive for HIV a few months before this meeting, but she was not ready to be public about it. She told me, she told a couple of other friends. Judy Clark. It's sort of all or nothing in there. I think really once once she decided that it was too much effort to keep it secret, it liberated her. Uh. Like she then could have a voice and a role And we were connected by then to people on the outside who were also powerfully waging a struggle. And she loved the idea of that struggle. And so I think it gave her a sense of purpose and identity that was part of her own self-liberation. At a meeting one day, Katrina got up in front of everyone and she told them. And people's mouths, like, dropped, you know, (laughs) because... Like I say, they see me as this Muslim, you know, they see me as, you know, this girl who jogged in the yard all the time, you know, I was the law library clerk, so no, I, I was straight, you know, so how did she get infected, you know? Um, and so I said to them, close your mouth. Katrina never complained about nothing. She would come with her little fragile self and her little notebook. Feisty, fair. Soft-spoken. Katrina, little piece of chocolate. Her skin was so chocolate-like, you know, nice and soft. 
very analytic. While we all going off, she was sitting down, listening. Because Wendy was a hairdresser, she knew everybody. So she was also recruited to join the group. We were so blessed to really establish something that helped us survive at that time and be creative and be productive. Because society forgot about us. Like, they forget. Once you go to prison, that's it. Especially in maximum security. They don't care what happened to us. We're just dogs. But the women, they did care about what happened to each other. And so they would talk openly in these meetings about their fears and their symptoms and how to protect themselves. Here's Wendy leading a workshop at the prison in Bedford. Okay, so I tengo Violeta, Luz, Rosa, Mileni. Okay. En esta esquina con la cámara, como podemos ver, hoy vamos a hablar de transmisión sexual. She's talking about safe sex. Exacto. Si no, no hay condón, no hay sexo. I am the greatest sex educator ever, honey. By this point, the group had a name for itself. They called it AIDS Counseling and Education, or ACE for short. It was the first known AIDS group for women in the nation, and it was formed in a prison. It was the beginning of what would become Katrina Haslip's life's work. I represent the excluded and underrepresented groups of women, minorities, and HIV-positive individuals, and also prisoners, of which I am a member of all of the above. Pretty soon, people outside of Bedford began hearing about Katrina's work. One of them was Terry McGovern. She founded the HIV Law Project in Lower Manhattan. So when these women started to come in, a number of them had been incarcerated at Bedford Hills. And they were all talking about this jailhouse lawyer who had helped them, Katrina Haslip. And whenever they said Katrina Haslip, they would get these broad smiles. So I kind of became obsessed with who is Katrina Haslip. Terry would soon get to find out, because it was September of 1990 and Katrina was about to be released from prison. Judy Clark was still inside. She was very clear that when she left Bedford, she was going to be part of the movement outside. She was going to bring the voices of women and Black women to that movement, that she saw that it was a predominantly white movement at that point. And Katrina would do almost anything to get those voices out there, including breaking her parole. That's coming up after the break. Carnegie Hall is one of the most famous concert venues in the world. The first time I walked on the stage, I felt like my feet were moving, but they were not touching the floor. Join us for If This Hall Could Talk, a new podcast that explores the history of this iconic landmark through the unique items in its archives. I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and together we'll explore how the past shaped the culture we live in today. Listen to If This Hall Could Talk wherever you get podcasts. This is Blind Spot, The Plague in the Shadows. I'm Lizzie Ratner. On September 10th, 1990, Katrina Haslip was released from the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility. Within three weeks, she breaks her parole 
by taking a bus to Washington, D.C. to join a massive protest organized by ACT UP. And there's someone else there, Terry McGovern of the HIV Law Project. I had been to many ACT UP demonstrations, but it was they were never like, you know, predominantly women of color with HIV speaking. You know, so it was a different type of demonstration for sure. One of the reasons why women remain untreated is because they don't have Medicaid and they have no access to health care. They can't afford it. Terry had just submitted a lawsuit that dealt with precisely that. She was suing the federal government for discrimination. Her argument was that the government's definition of AIDS left out symptoms that affected women. I'm Philly Sharp from New York. I'm also a plaintiff in this lawsuit against the Social Security, charging them with discrimination against women. I applied April 1989. I couldn't work. I constantly have urinary tract infections, chronic fatigue, and I was denied. It's time they changed the definition and stop killing women, denying them of their disability. Thank you. And then suddenly somebody said, Katrina Haslip is getting off the bus. Terry and Katrina had never actually met before in person. And uh, I remember I, I looked over and there she was. And I, I walked over and we hugged. And I said, are you nuts? What are you doing here? You're going to get in trouble with your parole. And she said, I don't give a shit. You know, of course I'm here. had organized this demonstration to pressure the federal public health system to recognize women with HIV. Their focus was the fight to change the definition of AIDS. Now, to understand this fight, it's important to remember the basic difference between HIV and AIDS. HIV, or human immunodeficiency virus, is, well, a virus. It disables your immune system. And when it gets really advanced... It can lead to a bunch of illnesses that are collectively known as AIDS, or Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome. Now, when the Centers for Disease Control first came up with its list of AIDS-defining illnesses, it based that list on what they were seeing in men. And it excluded illnesses that were showing up in women, like... Yeast infections, one after the other. Pelvic inflammatory disease. Cervical cancer. And this led to a lot of problems. First, it meant that a lot of women with these symptoms, they didn't know that they had AIDS or that they might have AIDS. But it also meant that even when a woman knew she was HIV positive and when she was really, really sick, she still couldn't get an AIDS diagnosis. And this meant that she couldn't qualify for government benefits like Medicaid and disability. And Katrina was one of them. So she joined the campaign by ACT UP to get the CDC to change the definition of AIDS. So I've watched, and as an HIV positive woman, I too have suffered some of these symptoms. It's important for you to know that um, women are ill prior to any diagnosis of HIV, and that they often die of HIV complications without ever meeting the CDC definition of AIDS. Um, It's just a few weeks after the march in D.C. now, and Katrina is down in Atlanta speaking to a bunch of bigwigs at the CDC. She's there with Maxine Wolf, the ACT UP activist, the one who brought her tape recorder. Maxine remembers the meeting. 
I had to give a whole list of the assumptions that were underlying the fact that women were not being treated. Did you feel like you accomplished stuff and you actually managed to move them in that meeting? No, we didn't feel like we moved them. We felt like we told them what they needed to know. When we were walking out, Katrina just turned around and looked at them and she said, I hold you responsible for every woman with HIV who dies, including myself. And we left. They didn't say anything. They were just standing there with their mouths open. I can remember, in fact, I'm having a visual film going in in my mind right now of when I've had a number of women activists come into my conference room on the seventh floor of Building 31 on the NIH campus decades ago. That's Dr. Anthony Fauci. He was the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, and that meant that he ran AIDS research in the United States. It also made him a target for criticism from activists, like the ACT UP people who were in this meeting, who were really, really frustrated with how many people were dying and how little the government seemed to be doing about it. Do you happen to remember uh, just one woman who was part of that, Maxine Wolf? Oh, yeah. <laughs> she was a tigress. <laughs> I mean, she was very proactive, maybe even a little aggressive. But, you know, when, when people are not listening to you, retrospectively, you wind up respecting them for being that way. Yeah, I mean, we've talked to a number of, of women who said that, you know, in the late 80s, they really had to work to convince their doctors to test them because this idea that women could get HIV just wasn't out there in the general public that yeah. much. I think, yeah, I think you... you Somehow or other, the message was either not getting to or the general, very, very busy private physician who was in a region of the country or who has a population of patients that you would not intuitively feel would be at risk. Where, where do you think the bridge fell apart? You know, what was missing in the translation? You know, if I had a clear-cut answer, Lizzie, I would tell you, I don't know. It's as puzzling to me. I think there are multiple complicated reasons why that happens. The lack of people connecting the dots. I've been saying it now for 42 years that everybody can be at risk. Fauci wasn't exaggerating. He actually did write an article that was published years earlier, and it said that he expected the disease to go beyond gay men. Even so, women were still being excluded from treatments and studies. In the medical establishment, it was stubborn. It wasn't moving. And then, in December 1990, activists scored a breakthrough. There was a conference, finally, because of all this pushing, there was a conference at NIH about HIV in women. Dr. Kathy Anastas was there. She's the doctor whose teacher brought pinups to her anatomy class. It's almost 10 years into the epidemic, and this is the first national conference that focuses on women. A lot of people invited who had been pushing to have more studies of HIV in women, have any study of HIV in women, actually. Activists, doctors, researchers, they were all there, and they were fired up. They were not going to leave without getting something. And during that meeting is when Tony Fauci decided that 
they needed a study of women. Finally, a study about women. It didn't begin until 1993, but it continues to this day. And it is the largest study on the progression of HIV in women in this country. But studies take a long time, especially when you have an incurable disease. Katrina had tested positive for HIV three years earlier, and her immune system was getting weaker. She was getting sicker. She didn't have a lot of time, and there was a lot that still needed to change. So she kept speaking out. Y'all ready? I'm here because I'm an ex-prisoner and I'm also HIV infected and I learned that status while being confined. And I want him to Katrina's at an ACT UP protest outside the Department of Corrections in Albany, New York. She's wearing this fake prisoner costume, and she's got this black leather hat tilted kind of to the side, a nose stud, gold hoop earrings. And because I want adequate health care for prisoners that I left there, and it shouldn't be a death sentence that they have HIV, I want education for them, peer education. I want them to let out terminally ill individuals due to HIV, um, because that's like double jeopardy, and it becomes a death sentence for those individuals. And if they pose no threat to society, let them out and, and let them die in dignity. So that's why I'm here. <laughs> Katrina was a force during this period. She started an HIV support group for women who were getting released from prison, and she called it ACE Out. She also kept fighting to change the definition of AIDS, and she did this on the one hand with ACT UP through its campaign against the CDC. But she also worked with Terry McGovern on her lawsuit, the one against the government. So I feel like she taught me this concept of, like, joyful resistance. It's joyful that we get to fight this together. It's joyful that we're standing up and resisting. Yes, we are being victimized, but we are not victims. We're models of resistance. But Katrina was more than a model of resistance. She was also an advisor. As the lawsuit was winding its way through the courts, Terry would go to her for guidance. She was my primary strategy advisor. I think she really loved the other women that she saw being mistreated and saw dying. She really was drawn to the law and justice because um, some part of her just couldn't ever be okay with this. Katrina was not well for very long on the outside. Like, she kept getting pneumonia and lots of gynecological problems and couldn't qualify for Medicaid or disability. Even Katrina couldn't get an AIDS diagnosis. Only HIV. So that meant as she got weaker, she didn't have a home care attendant. And here was, in my view, one of the biggest heroes. I hate that word, but really... And she was, like, falling on the floor with nobody to pick her up. We were sending clients, patients, volunteers to go help her. Katrina was in and out of the hospital. She was at St. Luke's Roosevelt a lot. And she'd have, like, 
high boots on and in the bed. And I'd be like, why are you wearing these high boots? She said, I snuck out and went shopping. And then every time I went to see her, she used to, you know, she used to steal my wallet. (laughs) You know, she'd say, you missing anything? Not, she did it a few times. So she was so lively, actually, and funny, and so wanted to live. Finally, after years of fighting in the fall of 1992, the CDC offered the activists a deal. They were going to change the definition of AIDS, but it wouldn't include every symptom the activists had asked for. And they were offering this compromise of bacterial pneumonia, tuberculosis, cervical cancer, and 200 or fewer T-cells. I remember having very serious conversations with her. Katrina, from her hospital bed. And... Um, she felt strongly that we should take it, that, you know, it was too important um, to, to not take it at this point, especially with the 200 T-cells, that that would bring a lot of people in. Um, and yes, there should be many more things in it, but, you know, there's no time for this, as I remember her saying. In October 1992, Terry and the Coalition of Activists decided to accept the CDC's offer. Terry raced to the hospital to tell Katrina. Because I wanted Katrina to make a statement. So I told her that the definition was being expanded, and then she gave this statement um, that was kind of saying, you know, this never would have happened without women standing up for themselves, without activists. This is not the way this should be, right? And, you know, I couldn't say she was happy. She was dying. She was so angry and wanted the record to reflect that we had to fight tooth and nail to be acknowledged of dying of AIDS. The new CDC definition was set to go into effect in January 1993. So if Katrina lived into the new year, she would get the AIDS diagnosis. But she didn't live. Katrina Haslip died on December 2nd, 1992. She was 33 years old. For Katrina to die and never get AIDS, given who she'd been, it just, I started to just feel just like shell-shocked and sick. After three years of fighting, Terry and the activists had won. But Katrina had died. And it was too late for scores of other women with AIDS. I really have this recurrent memory of, you know, walking into the office here and it was those pink messages, like piles of messages of clients that had died. It kind of felt like everybody was dying and the plaintiffs in the lawsuit were dying, so we were winning, who cares, right? But the victory did matter. The number of women diagnosed with AIDS went up 45% after the CDC changed its definition. And that's because all of a sudden, HIV-positive women suffering from one of the newly included symptoms, they were being counted as having AIDS. It's ultimately really weird to win lawsuits for people who are dead. Even when I teach it, like I teach at a school of public health, so I try to say, here's why science is not neutral, right? And I 
whenever I show that 45% increased slide, I never feel joy. I feel really angry and sad, you know? Most of these women are not around to, you know, be in the films. On the other hand, you know, as I have, I hope, been able to describe, I carry them, right? But nothing about this is okay. <laughs> Did you have a memorial for her in the prison? Yes, we did. And I think we also had the quilt for Katrina. Awilda Gonzalez. She was still in prison when Katrina died. She was released a few years later. And she and a group of women, they stitched a panel for the AIDS memorial quilt in memory of Katrina. Because, you know, the quilt was also part of our therapy. Every time somebody passed away... So we will get together and design the quilt, and we will sit around that big table to design it and to talk about the person and to share beautiful memories. And just... Yeah. That was part of our therapy. Katrina was a powerful, determined woman. She fought to the end. Yeah. And that's what counts. She got the chance to be a movement leader, an eloquent, powerful, incredibly impactful movement leader. That's Judith Clark again. She was released from Bedford in 2019. But she didn't get the chance to then say, okay, that's great, but what about my life and who I want to be? Which is a challenge that all of us have as we re-enter life outside of prison. Before she died, Katrina wrote the introduction to an oral history of ACE called Breaking the Walls of Silence. And it's the story of how these women came together and began changing the story of AIDS for women. Ay, Katrina, Katrina de mi vida. Page 10. Okay. Let me see. Katrina's old friends, Wendy and Judy, they're going to read her words. We were the community that no one thought would help itself. Social outcasts because of our crimes against society in spite of what society inflicted upon some of us. We emerged from the nothingness with a need to build consciousness and to save lives. We made a difference in our community behind the wall, and that difference has allowed me to survive and thrive as a person with AIDS. To my PS in Bedford Hills Correctional Facility, you have truly made a difference. I can now go anywhere and stand openly, alone, without the silence. Katrina Haslip, 1990. Today, the medical establishment in the United States fully recognizes that women can get HIV and AIDS. The field of women's health is much more robust, and women with HIV are surviving and, yes, thriving into their 50s, 60s, even 70s. But we have so much farther to go. 
Among the women who test positive for HIV each year in this country, more than half of them, more than half, are Black. And almost 20% are Latina. That racial disparity among women is actually a defining trait of the AIDS epidemic in America. No matter how you slice it, Black people have been shockingly overrepresented since the beginning in who contracts the virus, in who develops AIDS, and who dies from it, even if few people acknowledge these facts. And in the years following Katrina Haslip's death, Black people would begin to account for the majority of all new infections and new AIDS diagnoses each year. There are so many reasons for this disparity, but one of them, painfully, is the Black community's reluctance to confront HIV and AIDS when it came for us. You know, God hates homosexuals, or God hates you because you're doing drugs, or this is a raft of God, or some whatever negative, destructive messaging that they got, most times they got it from the pulpit, the most influential place in our community. In our next episode, we ask, what broke down in Black America when HIV showed up? Blindspot, The Plague in the Shadows is a co-production of the History Channel and WNYC Studios in collaboration with The Nation magazine. Our team includes Emily Botine, Karen Frillman, Anna Gonzalez, Sophie Hurwitz, Lizzie Ratner, Christian Reedy, and myself, Kai Wright. Our advisors are Amanda Aronchik, Howard Gertler, Jenny Lawton, Marianne McCune, Daruba Richin, and Linda Villarosa. Music and sound design by Jared Paul. Additional music by Isaac Jones. And additional engineering by Mike Kutchman. Our executive producers at the History Channel are Jesse Katz, Eli Lehrer, and Mike Stiller. Thanks to Miriam Bernard, Lauren Cooperman, Andy Lancet, and Kenya Young. I'm Kai Wright. You can also find me hosting Notes from America live on public radio stations each Sunday, or check us out wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for listening. That was episode three of Blindspot, The Plague in the Shadows. And as promised, I have something to tell you about how you can engage with this podcast series. I've been hearing from a lot of listeners who want to chime in about their own experiences. So on Sunday, February 25th, Notes from America will host a pair of live radio specials featuring some of the voices from Blindspot. And we'd really love to add your stories to those conversations. So if you have a relationship to this history, ways you have been impacted by the AIDS epidemic or ways you've cared for and supported loved ones or your community when institutions could not or would not do that work, we want to hear from you. As always, you can leave me a message at 844-745-8255. 844-745-8255. We'll place some of those voicemails during the show. But I also invite you to join us live on February 25th from 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time. 
That hotline number, again, 844-745-8255, will be lit up during that time. Our producers will be answering. You can talk to me and our guests live on the air. February 25th, we'll take your call. So make yourself a calendar reminder for this special live show, and I hope you'll tune in and listen. Thanks for your time. I'm Kai Wright. Talk to you soon. Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting, but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged.